This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Whoa, whoa. You know, I'm almost grown. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, and I'm doing all right in school. They ain't said I broke no rules. I ain't never been in Dutch. I don't browse around too much. Could not resist starting with uh, those opening strains of Chuck Berry's Almost Grown. I think that came off of the American Graffiti soundtrack album. Always liked that song and was reminded of, uh, of Chuck Berry uh, by listening to KDVS last week when Guy Tortorisi sitting in for us at Radio Parallax. Uh, we did not have a, uh, uh, a new show for him, so we went back into the archives and plucked out our talk about Jerry Lieber, he of Lieber and Stoller, songwriting group, uh, after which uh, we did an excerpt with Kyle Larson, a good friend of ours, musicologist who came on to talk about Lieber. And afterwards, uh, we had Kyle return to discuss the passing of Chuck Berry. You will find this on our website at radioparallax.com if you go in and type in uh, the names you're looking for, Lieber or Larson or uh, Barry, Chuck Berry. Larson with an E. Thank you. Anyway, Kyle was a very fun guest, and uh, we, we need to bring him back, Mr. McMillan. Got to say, listening to our archival material, uh, I... I I'm pleased at how well it holds up or seems to hold up after all these years. That's my personal opinion, which does not necessarily reflect that of KDVS, the Regents of the University of California, or I don't know, anybody else. Like Edward McMillan. Wait a minute, let's clarify that. You, you agree the archives are good? What do you mean good? They're great. Okay, all right, good. Obviously, we are not archival today, but live. Actually, it probably isn't obvious, but it's a fact. Well, I, live isn't the right word. A, a new material, I guess, is, is more correct. And boy, do we have new material. Things have been happening. Now, the problem with a lot of the items that we're, we want to look at today is that the, well, there's, there's a certain theme running through them, or rather a, a relentless negativity running through them because there's, there's a lot of bad news popping up. Let's not start out with that, though. Let's talk about something really cool from the world of science, and I think this is really cool. It's also one of those things you look at and you go, oh, God, that has to be right. And and why didn't we see this before? The item in question is the largest volcano in the solar system, that of Olympus Mons on the planet Mars. It's a biggie. In area, this volcano would be the size of Missouri, and it would be twice the height of Mount Everest. It would also be twice the height of the peak that's even bigger than Mount Everest on Earth if you start your measurement at the seafloor. In that case, it would be Mauna Kea on the big island of Hawaii, which is a couple thousand feet taller than Everest if you start at its true bottom on the seafloor. And speaking of starting on the seafloor, if you take another look at Olympus Mons on Mars and measure the heights, which have been done very accurately with the satellites uh, that orbit that have orbited Mars in the past, you'll know that the volcano spreads out and then stops and has these really high cliffs around the edge, which has been known for, you know, decades. Someone pointed out, you know, that could be a feature that came about because it was once an island. 
exactly like the Big Island of Hawaii, surrounded by water. Anyway, a group of scientists have published uh, in the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters, as of a few days ago, that, uh, well, they took a look at the morphologic similarities of many active volcanoes and islands, volcanic islands on Earth, took a look at Olympus Mons and went, oh yeah, yeah, look. Anyway, you're listening, we encourage you to pull this up on the web and take a look at it and see what you think. We had William Hartman on this program. He'd written an atlas of on the planet Mars, and in reading that, he talked about these, these, these high cliffs, remarkably high cliffs that surround Olympus Mons. So it was known, like I said, decades ago. People just didn't put two and two together. I think they've done so now, and I think they've done so correctly. That's my hunch. We're going to have to talk to our friends over at the Planetary Society about this uh, uh, in the near future. And we're always looking for good news on this program, and one item of good news we can report upon is that the U.S. has now, for the first time, the FDA here in America has approved birth control pills for over-the-counter sales, meaning Americans will no longer need to find a doctor to act as a conduit between them. Oh, and and by them I mean uh, a patient and the most effective form of contraception that's out there. Looks like there's going to be a certain type of pill. They're going to call it O-pill. It presents pregnancy about 93% of the time, which we would note is a much higher success rate than condoms at 87% or spermicides at 80% or other over-the-counter contraceptives. Writing in the New York Times, Pam Bellick said after the Supreme Court eliminated the national right to an abortion last year, the accessibility of contraception has become an increasingly urgent issue. Of course, Scientific American has pointed out it's not enough to merely have the medication approved, O-pill must also be affordable, and there's no word yet on price, which is going to require uh, lawmakers to mandate that private and state-based insurance plans cover this medication as they do for other OTC meds. O-pill should also be stocked on drugstore shelves rather than behind pharmacy counters. Let us hope. Ms. Wynn likes to point out that one form of contraception that we have not paid attention to is the smartphone. When you're on your smartphone, well, you're less likely to get pregnant. Speaking of pharmaceuticals and their prices, we have to balance off that little bit of good news with some ominous news, which is that Big Pharma has gone on the offense to try and wreck the Biden administration's plan to um, allow negotiations on Medicare drug prices. About 15 years ago, maybe more, I don't remember exactly when, Mr. Miller, we reported on this program to our great disgust when um, Congress and the Bush administration and and various uh, evildoers collaborated to get a bill passed through Congress that actually specifically prohibited federal agencies from being able to negotiate drug prices with Big Pharma. Big Pharma was given the ticket to call the tune, set their prices, and, you know, force people to like it or lump it. This was a, a product of the same kind of people that talk about how great it is that we have a free enterprise system and competition here in the United States of America. You know, why capitalism works the best, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, uh, leading economist Milton Friedman once pointed out about pretty much every industry known to man that, yeah, everybody in the industry is, a fa- is in favor of capitalism for everyone else and socialism for them. Anyway, to quote uh, from an article on this in the New York Times, This is from Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Rebecca Robbins. The pharmaceutical industry, which suffered a stinging defeat last year when President Joe Biden signed a law authorizing Medicare to negotiate the price of some prescription medicines, 
Let me repeat that. Authorizing Medicare to negotiate the price of some prescription medications is now waging a broad-based assault on the measure just as negotiations are about to begin. The law, the Inflation Reduction Act, is a significant legislative achievement for Biden, who had boasted that he took on the drug industry and won. The provisions allowing Medicare to negotiate prices are expected to save the government an estimated $98 billion over a decade, while lowering insurance premiums and out-of-pocket costs for many older Americans. And by the way, I mean, don't take the position on this program here that, uh, that profits are illegal, but let's just say Big Pharma is doing pretty well at the moment, uh, in no small part due to this favoritism they've been shown. Anyway, back to the New York Times article. On Tuesday, Johnson & Johnson, that was Tuesday of last week, about July 18th, Johnson & Johnson became the latest drug maker to take the Biden administration to federal court in an attempt to halt the drug pricing program. Three other drug companies, Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Astellas Pharma, have filed their own lawsuits, as have the industry's main trade group and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The suits make similar and overlapping claims that the drug pricing provisions are unconstitutional. Yeah, that's right. In their mind, it's unconstitutional for, for people to be able to negotiate with people that are selling something, in this case, drugs. Anyway, they've scattered these lawsuits in federal courts around the country, a tactic that experts say gives the industry a better chance of obtaining conflicting rulings that will put the legal challenges on a fast track to the business-friendly U.S. Supreme Court. This legal push comes just weeks before the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is scheduled to publish a long-awaited list of the first 10 drugs that will be subject to negotiations. That list is due out on September 1st. Makers of the selected drugs have until October 1st to declare whether they will participate in negotiations or face steep financial penalties for not doing so. Of course, the lower prices will not even take effect until 2026. The article goes on to say that, for decades, the pharma lobby has blocked efforts to let Medicare negotiate lower drug costs. President Biden is proud to be the first president who beat them, according to White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre. The article notes that Republicans opposed the drug pricing provisions, which they regard as a form of government price control, which of course makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Letting Big Pharma set the price and doing nothing about it, uh, well, that's, that's not a form of government price control, is it? And of course, Big Pharma is, is, is you know, predicting that if, if this goes through, we won't be able to have any money to, to fund research and development, which is sort of a laugh when you realize that Big Pharma spends a lot more money on advertising than it does on R&D. And when they do spend money on R&D, it is to find a drug that you will take every day of your life, not something like a new antibiotic that will save lives because, well, it's only a finite use for that. Anyway, I'll wager that our good friend Stephen Harper has a thing or two to say about uh, this development, and we'll have to maybe go to him in the not-too-distant future to hear those opinions. And when it comes to the confluence of craziness in American medicine, well, funny we find right at the center of that, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The story of RFK Jr. is, is, is saddening to me because a lot of people I respect a great deal have really, really jumped on the, uh, the RFK bandwagon on his political efforts to steal the Democratic nomination away from President Biden, who, by the way, is not Prince Charming. We'll have more to say about our chief executive momentarily. But first, let's talk about RFK Jr. He's really got his, uh, let's just, shall we say, teat in the ringer 
over some particularly wacky statements he made recently. He suggested in an interview that COVID-19 was bioengineered and targeted at specific ethnicities and races while sparing others. Those supposedly being spared were Chinese and Ashkenazic Jews. He later tried to squirm out of it, saying he never really said that exactly, but uh, those words are just not going away. And in this, I'm quoting our friend Russ Baker, who is <laughs> making a habit of uh, calling out RFK and, and holding his feet to the fire. In fact, I feel a need to quote from his most recent piece on this titled, RFK Jr.'s Panel of Health, Hoaxers, Hucksters, and Hustlers. Russ published a photo of RFK and, and, and seven other people taking part in a virtual health policy round table. And boy, what a crew this was. One person uh, joining him in that roundtable is Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. She's an early promoter of the theory that COVID-19 is a bioweapon designed to spare Chinese and Jewish people, which is almost exactly what Kennedy later claimed publicly. Although she, she might be only confirming ideas he already had. Tenpenny, notes Russ Baker, is quite the character. She has shared numerous anti-Semitic claims in social media, including Holocaust denial and praise. And this, this one really brings me up short. Praise for the notorious forgery, the protocols of the elders of Zion. You know, one of our very first shows in our, in our first year on the air, we, we spent some time debunking the most insane hoax in the history of publishing, I think, that of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Anyone that can praise that ridiculous forgery is, I'm telling you, my dear listener, by definition, a nut. Or as we like to say on this program. Also in this panel was Dr. Joseph Mercola, an osteopath like Tenpenny, and number one on a list titled The Disinformation Dozen on Vaccines. Over the last decade, Dr. Mercola has built a vast operation to push natural health cures also disseminate anti-vaccination content, and profit from all of it. At least that's according to research who have studied his network. In 2017, he filed an affidavit claiming his net worth was in excess of $100 million. Another co-panelist with RFK on this um, roundtable discussion was Patrick Gentempo. He's a chiropractor, he's an entrepreneur, and he's CEO of Action Potential Holdings. And he's also a documentary filmmaker and host of Christ Revealed, and creator of Wisdom, that's in capitals, the world's first Christian daily supplement. Wisdom is an herbal potion that Gentempo claims reduces wrinkles, lines, and age spots, relieves joint pain, regulates blood sugar levels, fortifies your immune system, and more. One month's supply is only $59. According to Quackwatch, his anti-vaccination series of documentaries, quote-unquote, called Vaccines Revealed, was cited by the National Council Against Health Fraud. Another guy on the panel, Pierre Corey, MD, president and co-founder of Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. He's a major promoter of ivermectin as a cure for COVID, which has been discredited. He testified to the U.S. Senate that ivermectin is a 100% effective cure for COVID-19. A medical journal retracted a paper of his on ivermectin after discovering it was based on flawed data. Surprise. Anyway, I hate to go on on this, but I, I think I need to. Another co-panelist was Del Bigtree, CEO of Informed Consent Action Network, an anti-vaccination group that has made millions off of spreading misinformation. Apparently, Russ could not resist circling back to Dr. Tenpenny to note that she has claimed that vaccines leave people magnetized. 
and this was her proof. They can put a key on their forehead. It sticks. They can put spoons and forks all over them, and they can stick because now we think there's a metal piece to that. She apparently explained this as an expert witness, no less, to lawmakers in the Ohio House at hearings in favor of a bill that would prevent businesses and government from requiring proof of vaccination. And evidently, a nurse tried to demonstrate the phenomenon with what were described as embarrassing results. Anyway, I'm sorry to say we've not heard the last of RFK Jr. Uh, in the news media or even here on Radio Parallax, but I think I need to stop at this point because it just makes me crazy. Anyway, and some other remarkable news that's associated with uh, COVID, we have the fact that evidence has surfaced that the Chinese government, surprise, surprise, uh, has been covering up the facts about what happened in China with COVID. Evidently, the authorities over there last week accidentally published and then quickly deleted data suggesting the country had vastly understated its true death toll from the pandemic. Cremation data from the eastern province of Xinjiang briefly posted on a government website showed 171,000 deaths in the first quarter of the year, a rise of 70% over the same period in 2022. COVID surged in China early this year when pandemic restrictions were finally lifted and up to 90% of the 1.4 billion people in China got infected. China says the entire pandemic has claimed just 83,000 lives across the country. But the Xinjiang cremation data is in line with a New York Times analysis that that puts China's death toll closer to 1.5 million. I don't know, shooting from the hip on that, I think that is a gross underestimation. We lost a million Americans to COVID. You know, China's got four times the population of the U.S., so one has to wonder. Now, admittedly, their draconian measures did keep the the death toll and the, the rate of disease down for a while, but, you know, everybody realized at some point that was going to have to be relaxed. It was, and then there was a bit of hell to pay. And while I don't have the actual stats in front of me at the moment, I, I did read recently that uh, the number of people in the U.S. that have some protective antibodies is, is pretty high at this point, in the 90s. And that's just from, that's not just from vaccinations, of course. A lot of that comes from people having gotten the disease. But anyway, Mr. Miller just reports that the actual number is 95%, which is pretty darn good. And I think it's um, evidence that, as we suspected, COVID would become this endemic virus, probably, hopefully at some point, no worse than a cold virus, like the four previous coronaviruses that now give people colds. Anyway, COVID isn't going to go away, so you can bet we're going to be talking more about it in the weeks and months to come. Although I think it's fair to say uh, with better things to report upon than we have had in the past. Anyway, let's talk about some other evil actions by big corporations um, to influence politicians to act in their benefit and against that of the public at large. In this case, um, big tech. We've tried to report on a regular basis on, on the villainy of big tech on this program. And it's sad to note that we need to give them a slap again for the fact that they worked very hard through their lobbyists to set aside a law that would require them to pay publishers for the news that they profit from but don't have to develop on their own. We're going to try and serve up a slap on this. What we would like to be uh, launching would be a cruise missile. Anyway, I had to laugh over the difference in reporting between uh, the Bay Area newspaper, the East Bay Times, and that of the Sacramento Bee. The Sacramento Bee is not as beholden to tech as is you know, the Mercury News and East Bay Times. 
Ethan Barron, writing in the East Bay Times, said, quote, Signaling potential trouble for an effort to help news organizations survive in the Internet age, an East Bay lawmaker has pulled back a bill that would force Google, Meta, and other big technological firms to pay media companies in California for using their content. The bipartisan California Journalism Preservation Act, AB 886, had been scheduled for a hearing next week. This is from a July 19th item, so it would have been about the 15th or 16th. The hearing would have been in the state Senate committee after the assembly passed it last month. But in an abrupt reversal of momentum, the bill, strongly opposed by major tech firms, has now been sidelined until next year. The halt comes as Google and Facebook's parent company, Meta, battled similar efforts in Canada and Australia, threatening to pull news from their platforms. Meta has made similar ultimatums in California. The California bill aims to bolster the finances of traditional news outlets that have struggled even as their content has helped digital advertising giants attract users to their platforms. The bill's co-sponsor is Buffy Wicks, an Oakland Democrat. She acknowledged a couple weeks back that big tech firms have conducted a lobbying frenzy against the bill since day one. But she insisted the support in the legislature has not waned. I don't know how she can say that when the bill got shelved in the Senate, but, you know, whatever. Quoting Wicks, Big tech isn't as sympathetic a figure as they once were. Lawmakers realize there's a real problem here. We have dying newsrooms across the state of California. Over 100 publications have closed in the past 10 years. At the same time, we have big tech making record profits in part off content that the publishers have produced. Wicks said she introduced the bill at the start of a two-year legislative session because she knew it would take some time to hash out. Sometimes bills are pushed into a second year to have them go down and die a slow death quietly. She said, that's not what's happening here. I hope she's right. Nevertheless, legislators scuttled a scheduled hearing for the bill in the Senate Judiciary Committee, a signal that not everything is happening according to plan. This article notes that Google and Meta take in nearly half of all digital advertising revenue worldwide, according to an April bulletin from Insider Intelligence. Over the past decade, newspaper advertising has plummeted 66%. Newsroom staff numbers have fallen 44%, according to the bill. Meta predictably blasted the legislation, repeating its pledge that if AB866 passes, we will be forced to remove news from Facebook and Instagram rather than pay into a slush fund that primarily benefits big out-of-state media companies under the guise of aiding California publishers. God, I wish we had a cruise missile. Google said Friday in a statement that it supports strengthening the news business in California. Yeah, right. We just don't want to give them any money but believes passage of the bill could hurt smaller publishers and favor large established ones. Sure, that, that's a great scam. That's a great bait-and-switch argument. Anyway, the bill is sponsored by the California News Publishers Association, notes the East Bay Times, to which the Bay Area News Group belongs and is backed by a number of print and broadcast news companies. It is opposed by a range of groups, including, I'm disgusted to say, the ACLU of California the California Taxpayers Association, and the California Chamber of Commerce, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and some apparently online news organizations, which, of course, are, I'm sure, run by, you know, big tech, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, 
The other stooges are not surprising, but the fact that the ACLU of California is opposed to this really is a wake-up call to me. I, I reported on this program some months back that, you know, with the good work the ACLU did in this area or that area, and I'm not forget, forgetting, and I'm forgetting which area we were citing at the time, I had to join. Uh, I did. But after reading this, I think I'm going to rescind my membership. The Sacramento Bee editorial board had a, a rather hard-hitting uh, uh, piece on, on this uh, bill. The Bee said, newsrooms across the country are shrinking and newspapers are disappearing at an alarming rate, in large part because major tech platforms can link to news stories and capture the resulting advertising dollars without paying for the journalism that adds value to their sites. Apparently, the wordsmithing in AB886 uh, is regarded as important to the editors because they say it, uh, it's creating an added layer of accountability. News outlets are going to have to publicly demonstrate that 70% of the proceeds received from tech platforms were invested in newsroom budgets, journalists, and support staff, a consequential requirement that will ensure that the California Journalism Preservation Act lives up to its name. Seems pretty clear to this correspondent that uh, big tech is not being required to, to spend any money on these things. The B notes, it's not an exaggeration to say that the world is watching. Similar reforms are advancing in Switzerland, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa, and New Zealand, according to a recent report from the nonprofit Pointer Institute. In the U.S., the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act has gotten some traction in Congress, but so far has fallen <laughs> short of passage. Yeah, yeah, hello. Says the B, limited corporate philanthropy from Google and Facebook to news outlets is not a substitute for steady compensation for original content based on quantitative metrics. Producing quality local journalism isn't free. The question is how to fairly recover those costs so the news outlets can provide essential news and information and the public can stay informed. AB 886 is a sensible reshaping of the media market with a dose of sunshine on news outlets' budgets so that local journalism can result in more local journalists. Anyway, dear listener, we got to take a break in a moment here, but we do encourage you to support, uh, uh, financially support, people whose news you utilize. We pay for something like uh, 15 different news sources uh, just here for Radio Parallax, and we don't recoup any of it with advertising. Although we are thinking about bringing back Dr. Bonaparte's all-natural rat killer, along with Agent Orange in a can, but... Uh, uh, maybe maybe not soon. Anyway, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got lots more to talk about. <laughs> 